Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you want to keep that text open, we're going to be walking through this in the second week of our series called The Cruciformed Life. How are we shaped by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and all that comes with that? Both our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, and most of all, he's writing to a church. Last week, we talked about the core value of the foolishness of God being discovered in the cross. The world thinks that the cross was foolish, that it was unnecessary, that it was mythology. But we understand through the Holy Spirit that what God has been doing from the very beginning of our fall into sin and our rebellion against him, what God did by sending Jesus and correcting all of that in the nature of what Christ accomplished in the crucifixion. I want to begin as we head into week two. We're going to be looking in this chapter three as Paul has this uh, direct conversation in response to this church in a town called Corinth. I want to go all the way to the end and then go forward or come backwards from that. So let me put it this way. When we die, the approaching father, the, the God of all as he approaches us will either be our worst nightmare or our greatest joy. And all of us will pass through the portal of life into death, and we'll either live after that or face eternal damnation because of it. Now, this is something we want to talk about, but to be able to draw focus and provoke us toward mindfulness, it's important that we think about this. When the Father approaches on the day of judgment, we'll either repel in fear for the lives we've wasted, or we will embrace him as our loving Father who we had relationship with. And we get to choose each and every moment, every decision, every conversation, every action we choose, we get to choose what kind of response we're going to have when he comes for us and returns. And in light of that, the choices we make each and every day matter. That's why when we see God approaching and we understood the predetermined love of God as shown by Jesus on the cross, we'll receive him as the loving father who gave everything for us. Or if we reject that predetermined affection, then we will stand before him wishing we had done anything but the choices we made in life. And one of the missions of the church is to awaken us over and over. This community of faith, not an organization, but a community of people called by God through Jesus Christ to restoration. The purpose of the church, here at Christ Church of Orinogo, uh, we're not... We're not distinct from anybody else, but we choose in Ephesians chapter four to remind ourselves regularly that the purpose of the church is to help God's people find their completeness in Jesus. And it's not to be found by abdicating their responsibilities to an organization, but helping each one of us pursue Jesus on our own. So on that day that we meet the father and and we see him face to face, we will embrace him because of the lives we had with him rather than running away in fear for the lives we threw away. And in spite of all of that, or in light of all that rather, as we look at where we're going today, Paul is writing to a church and he's reminding them of these same things, that there are core values that make them a community. But the whole concept of community in Paul's mind is based on unity. And that makes sense to us. We have the same values. We believe that Jesus Christ was real, that he was sent by God, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he was raised three days later, that he he came to, to bring the new kingdom to light and invite all Jews and Gentiles, everybody into this new kingdom by his blood. We believe in that and we value that. But when you think of community, I don't want you to think of an organization. I want you to think of your friendship circles, the people you hang with, 
You know, the ones you do life with, if you will. And you'll find that not only do you probably agree on most everything, and not, not all the small details that don't matter, but you agree that you should do the right thing, you should love people, you should be forgiving, you should be kind, you have these values. But not only do you have similar values, but you'll find that you have similar experiences. And those experiences are shaped by your values. That you, you do, you love the same music, but you go to concerts because of that love for music. You, you love books, but you read the same books and you talk about those books. You worship Jesus together. You, you try to forgive and love and care for one another. And Paul is writing to a church that was in this metropolitan area, if you will, with all the influences of different groups coming in, philosophies, religions, and all these things coming together. And Paul is trying to focus their mind on being shaped by the cross in everything they do and think. Take everything to the foot of the cross and the wisdom of God. And as he brings all of this together, he's cautioning them. Sometimes he's rebuking them. Sometimes it's a personal attack against Paul. Sometimes it's a theological issue that he's dealing with. But Paul is bringing this all together to have this conversation. And last week, one more time, he said that the cross is foolish to the world, but it makes total sense to us when the Spirit reveals what God has been doing. And then Paul goes back to an argument that's found in chapters 1 and 2, but it's highlighted even more here in chapter 3. And that's where they were divided. They were not unified in their community. In fact, they were being divisive. They were following one person said, well, Paul planted the church and, and we, we knew Jesus because Paul introduced him to us. And someone came in and said, well, Paulus came in after Paul and, and we learned it from him. And they were dividing themselves under which camp of which teacher or which leader meant the most to them. And Paul, he can't take this because he said, no, our unity must be around Jesus, not around a human. Not around man's ideas, but, but this foundation that God has established from the very beginning. See, we don't just agree, we engage. We engage everything we are. We engage our minds, our souls, our, our strength. Everything we have is for this purpose of unifying around that which matters. So I just want to make a couple of points from this text to guide. I don't think I'm going to be introducing anything new to you today. But I know I'm introducing something important. And that is that our unity, our community must be based on a unity that engages all of us for a purpose bigger than any of us, which is why no one person should be, you should follow no one human being. You should follow the one who actually gives you something to follow. Let's begin with this point. Our work matters. God's will matters more. Now that's, that's not profound. That's just fact. But I think what's missing is the first clause in most of our lives. We believe that God's will matters more, but we're not sure our work matters. And I want you to know today that what Paul's calling us to, it does matter. Let's read verses five through nine. What after all is Apollos? He's, he's asking them a question based on the division instead of the unity. After all, what is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. So he's asking them the question, why are we spending time arguing about who has more influence, who has more authority, who has more power, who has prestige, who's being recognized? And we know historically that in the church, that's become a thing that's divided churches. Who gets thanked? Who doesn't get thanked? Who gets recognized? Who gets noticed? And Paul says, why are we doing this? We're just servants. 
But I'm, I'm cautious because that word servant today is a trigger word, isn't it? And, and we tend to think, well, no one should be a servant of anybody. I, I want to tell you a story that Jesus told, a little parable, if you will, in Luke 17. It'll appear on the screen. Here's what Jesus said. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing and looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. Once again, that word servant, I have, to, I have to clarify in this generation we're living in, and I understand why it is because there is such thing as sex slavery and so forth. But this, the servant that Jesus is talking about is not a person who was stripped from their land and taken their personal freedoms and forced against their will to serve a master. That's not the servant he's talking about. He's talking about what we've done. We have chosen to follow him, to place ourselves in submission to him under his lordship. And if a person who chooses to do that, like in those days, a servant would agree to work for a master and live in their home and have room and board provided and, and the security for their family provided by the, the master. And he said, if a, if, if a boss came in and told an employee to do a certain thing, would that be unreasonable? And the answer, of course, is no, no, it wouldn't be unreasonable. It's what would be expected. He said, so if a, a master comes in and it's time for dinner and the servant who's in charge of dinner would that servant say, well, I'm not gonna feed you until I eat? No, of course, that's ridiculous. So Jesus said, wouldn't he just serve his master and then afterwards enjoy his own meal? And when his master says, thank you, the, the servant would say, no, no, this is what we agreed. This is, this is what I wanna do. I worked with a man for six to seven years in Mount Pleasant, Michigan before we moved here. And uh, I, I was teaching at the Bible college full-time, which was about an hour away from where we lived. And so I would have this conversation with him on a phone or by text or by email most every day. But Jeff would stay back at the ranch and take care of the things around the church. And then he would call me on my way back and tell me, stop by the hospital, do this or this. Jeff and I had a great friendship. I wish I could hang out with him more, but I don't see him very much. But I always have appreciated him because he taught me something in that six to seven year span. I can't imagine a handful of days that weren't Saturdays or Sundays that I didn't get a text, an email, or a phone call from Jeff. And he said these words to me. Is there anything I can do today to make your day easier? Now, on the org chart, I was the boss, but I really wasn't a good one. But he would call me every day. While doing his job, he would awaken every day and ask me this question. Is there anything I can do for you today that would make your day easier? And two things happened to me. I was incredibly impressed by him, and I was very ashamed that I never asked anybody that question. I just don't wake up thinking, how can I be a blessing to everybody else? Now, I'm very much interested in how you could be a blessing to me, let's be honest. But I just didn't, I, it wasn't in my nature. It wasn't, I just, in my brokenness, I never thought, how can I bless somebody? And this guy taught me day after day, relentlessly, he would ask that question, and he wouldn't take nothing for an answer. He'd say, hey, now just give me something to do today that would make your day easier. So Jesus said, in this, my little parable, which one really understood what it meant to serve with gratitude and love and affection? The one who asked the question. So he presents this scene to us and Paul, or Paul is saying to this church, you guys are arguing about whether your performance earns you something when actually our performance in the kingdom, the work that we do is because we've already been blessed. We have willingly followed Jesus and he asks us to do something. Should our answer be why should I have to? Or should our answer be if that's what you want, I'd be happy to do that for you. I would love to honor you in this way because it is when we serve that we grow. 
It's when we're engaged, when we're active, when we're participating in the work of the kingdom. Paul says, so why are we arguing about who has influence when all of us should have influence? Why are we arguing about who has supremacy when there's only one who's supreme and it ain't us? It's him. And he's challenging us to engage with our soul, our mind, and our bodies. Because here's what I want you to know. The work of the kingdom will be done. And God will reward those who work in his kingdom. And the kingdom will advance. And people will join into his kingdom because of the work we do. And all of this was God's intention from day one. There is work to be done. And as been mentioned, in verse eight, we all have a purpose, every single one of us. And in verse nine, we should be united in the working of that purpose. This is why we're here. This is what we're called to do. Our identity and our significance is found in our work, not in the acclaim we get for doing it. Verse 10. By thy grace, God has given me. I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. Paul goes from an agricultural image to an architectural image. So what he's done is he switched from, there's this garden that that Paul said, I planted it, but Apollos came in and tended to the plants that I planted and God produced growth in all of it. So he's using this imagery of fruit. That God's work, the gospel's work in all of our lives is producing a fruit in us that is not of us. It is from God. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And it is birthed in us and produced by God. And Paul says, don't think that because I told you the gospel story and Apollos nurtured you and discipled you that we had anything really to do with this. All we were doing was being faithful to what God gave us and God's producing fruit. And then he switches from producing fruit in us to talking about what he'll do with that fruit through us. He takes the agricultural image and he said, and I began to build on what Jesus started. Jesus set the cornerstone and the apostles, according to 1 Peter, came in and established the foundation on Jesus off the cornerstone. And all of us are building, generation by generation, we're building this kingdom the way God designed it. So he produces a fruit in us that becomes the work through us. And so with all of this imagery, he says in verse 10, a very important phrase, And when I looked at it, I've been struggling with this message for about three weeks and still am, but I was struggling with it then and I was looking, how do I take verse 10, which to me is the hinge of the entire text, and I could focus on build. That would be a good, that'd be good teaching. We need to be building. Well, then I thought, well, I could know I could extend that and say we should be building carefully because he says each one should build with care. So we should be carefully building and that's wise too. And that would make sense. But actually what I want to say to you today is the one part that I think is, is the crux of all of it. Each one. Every single one of us. I have a fear as a pastor that the church has become a political party for us. And I don't mean, I mean it this way, that there are a lot of people who go to a church expecting the church to do the spiritual work for them. Like abdicating your growth to us. Because I want you to remember that what Paul says in Ephesians 4 is that it is the church's responsibility with gifted teachers and leaders to equip God's people to find their completeness not to do it for them. Now, I'd love to partner with people, and I believe the mission of the church is as solid and needed today as it's ever been, but we can't be spiritual for you. You have to join us in the work, because in the work is where the blessing's at. In the effort, in in the serving the king, is where we find faith and joy explode. So on that day when we meet the Father face to face, we will run to him, already having had a relationship with him, rather than running away from him, realizing we blew our opportunity. And so in the midst of all of this, we are being shaped by the cross and each one of us 
should build with care. Verse 12. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss but yet be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. So the question being asked is, what's at risk here? Now, whenever you see the expression in the New Testament, that day, it will take you back to the Old Testament conversation of the judgment day. That day is always representative of the day of judgment. Now, I I don't know about you, but I grew up with a weak theology, not because anyone forced it on me, because I was immature in my thinking, and I always thought, well, if I'm saved, I don't have to worry about the judgment day, because I'm already going to heaven. I don't have to worry about going to hell, until I got older and someone actually instructed me properly that there is a judgment for both believers and unbelievers. One is a judgment of reward for the work that we do, and one is a judgment of lack of faith and eternal destruction. Now, Grateful this morning that I don't have to fear the day of judgment and because of faith in Jesus Christ and his faithfulness to me, I won't have to face that judgment. But please understand, every single one of us, the work we do matters because one day we will stand before this Father returning for us and reestablishing this new heaven and earth, if you take that imagery, that we're gonna stand before him and we are gonna have something to offer him or nothing to offer him. And it says that on that day, fire being the judgment device, which shows the value of everything, if it was made with the precious metals that withstand the flames, those things will be presented to God as a gift. And if we spent our life doing inconsequential things that the world said was spiritual, but it had no value, it wasn't building on the foundation of Jesus, those things will be gone, never to be remembered again. Although the person remains saved. Now, this may complicate some of our minds and we keep thinking, well, wait a second, but if I get judged and I have nothing to offer him, how do I get in? Because you didn't get in by works. You got in by faith. You get in because you trusted the good work of Jesus Christ and everything we bring is garbage. But there are certain choices we make in everyday life. There are certain words we say. There are certain moments that we capitalize by faith on the promise of Jesus Christ that bursts life in other people. And those things will be tested. And we will stand before the Father and we will, have, we will give him the gifts of our life. We will say, we did this and this. And the reason I'm saying all of this to you this morning is I want to awaken every one of us. Don't waste your life bringing God nothing. Don't waste your life waiting until you die to figure out how to have a relationship with him. You can begin this moment by faith in Jesus Christ bringing God gifts. You could ask God something like this. Father, what could I do for you today that would be a blessing? What could I bring you today as a praise offering, as an act of worship of my day? The same way I was trained by a friend of mine with a very wonderful question that changed the way I chose to live. What's at risk here? Well, our work matters and it will be judged. And having nothing to offer God would be a wasted life. Verse 13, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. Verse 14, if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, it will suffer loss and yet be saved, even though one is only escaping through the flames. This is a culturally absent concept. 
because we have truncated, we have shortened, we have abbreviated the gospel message so much in culture. You hear it, you even hear it from people like me. You hear it out on the radios and you see it in books that we have turned this concept that all you have to worry about is salvation. Salvation is the birthing into the kingdom. It's not the end of the game. It's not just don't go to hell. It's begin to live the kingdom now to the glory of God. He has given us a purpose. He's given us a unity together that all of the fruit he's producing from our lives is gonna be used together to build this glorious kingdom where people understand, not you have to do these things so you don't go to hell, but you get to do these things and enjoy God. Because God is the gift. God is the gift. It's culturally absent. There is more to salvation than not going to hell. There is living life, there's freedom, there's the power of the spirit, there's the gifts that we bless others with that allows those we love to know the Jesus we love. And when they know the Jesus we love, they surrender their lives to him and like us become servants of the king who find their joy, not in not working, but actually in serving our king and bringing him pleasure. To not work for the glory of the Lord is to not walk by faith. But separate this with me today. I'm not suggesting you work yourself into heaven. You work because you're already a part of it. You're a part of the, the kingdom, you're part of the presence, you're part of the joy. Let there be no mistake, there is work to be done and it matters. The second thing I want us to understand is, he talks about the destruction of the sacred. In verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Each one of us matters. Each one of us is a brick in the building. Each one of us is a part of the stability going forward. Each one of us creates space for other people to gather. The temple was the place where the presence of God came into the, the temple and the people would gather around the presence of God and the focus wasn't on who was there. The focus was on who was in the middle. And our lives are to be focused on allowing the presence of God to join in our midst and focusing all attention on who he is and what he's providing all of us. And nobody who's in the presence of God will feel anything but blessed and loved. Engage. Engage in the work with your mind, your soul, your body, your strength. This is not hypothetical. It is possible to build well and it is possible to build with things that don't last long, but it's to the building, it's to the work, it's to the glory of God that we pursue this. So the question of the morning is simply this. Are we taking advantage of what he's offered us? But this isn't a question I want you to answer as an individual. In the midst of a crowd of people who do believe that Jesus was real and that what he offers us matters, the question is how do we live this out? As, as a man pursuing Jesus with all my heart and awaiting that day that I run to my father and jump in his arms and see him face to face for the first time, instead of being fearful, I embrace that. How do I live that out today? How do you live it? We answer this question ourselves. Am I taking advantage of the opportunity today to offer God a gift with my life in the things I say, the things I do, the people I love? Verse 18, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you thinks you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. He's hearkening back all the way to last week. The world will tell you there's a way to do this and do this and do this and just listen to God's ways. Even if it appears foolish, trust God. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. 
And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. Verse 21, so then no more boasting about human leaders. I like this, Paul's like, are we over this, right? That we can follow Jesus with full power, full enablement, and together we all follow Jesus. And if you start following certain people, because just stop. He said, follow Jesus, that's what you need. That's the foundation. Then he says, all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Once again, in verse 19, the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. The wisdom of the world says, make your own glory, make your own place, make your own acclaim, make your own status, make sure people miss you when you're gone. And God says, no, make yourself nothing. Make yourself a servant, serve all people, wash feet, be here to love and serve and encourage and watch what God does with that. But then verse 21 is really where I wanna focus as I conclude. So then no more boasting about human leaders, all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Gordon Fee points this out and it was instructive for me. In fact, it was exciting. He said there's a list here in verse 22 of five things that keep us up at night. Five things that if we're honest and we put our hearts on it, would take away our sleep. It would cause us grief and anxiety and despair. Look at the world we live in. Is it going in the right direction? I think not. I remember my parents rolling their eyes and being disgusted at the music I listened to as a kid in the 70s. My dad would listen to a song on the radio and turn the radio down and look in the back seat at his three older boys and he'd say, what's that song about? And we would just hang our heads. We weren't talking to him about that. The other day, Braden and I were in the car and a song came on the radio and I wanted to scream. And all I could think of was they wouldn't have played that garbage in the 70s. My parents thought the same thing. I look at the world, what's, what's promoted on TV and everything, and I'm not gonna just be a social critic right now, but I think you would agree with me, right? If you just give me an amen, I'll move on. The world's rough, right? And it's hard to live in it. It's hard to pursue things of holiness. It's hard to believe that people really believe in good things when the stuff that's being paid for and promoted and people make millions of dollars producing is garbage. And it ruins the soul and the mind and everything that's good. I'll move on. How about life? You having a good one right now? I don't know about you. Uh, I, I, all in favor of 2020 ending right now, raise your hand. <laughs> Unanimous. Life's hard. It's unpredictable. You know what I'm learning about life? I never was in control, even when I amused myself to think I was. Death? Oh, there's another one. So the percentages are still true. One out of one people die. So we're all gonna walk through that whether we want to or not. And the thing we can't control is how and when. We just know if. Oh, the present? Wow, this is fun, isn't it? Remember when you wanted to be an adult? I'd like to go back to 74, start all over again, because I would avoid it as long as possible. The present's not fun. What's going on right now is hard. We don't know what's normal anymore. Everyone's trying to figure out the rules, and about the time you get it figured out, someone changed it in a meeting you weren't invited to. Future? Oh yeah, another person says, so when are we gonna get back to normal? I don't know. Nostradamus, tell me, I have no clue. I'm spending every day wondering what in the world, look at these five things. The world we live in, the lives we're living, the death we face, the present, which is hard, and the future, which we have no guarantee will be any better. That's an encouraging message. Now go have a great week. Do you know what? You never were in control of any of these. 
and no human leader has ever been in control. They can make all the promises they want about how they're gonna fix anything. They can't fix nothing, God can. You see, the core of this foundation is this. I may not be in charge of life or the world or death or the present or the future, but I know who is. I am 100% guaranteed who is. His name is Jesus, and he proved it by defeating death. And if he can handle that, bring on the other four. He's got those figured out too. And you either build your life on that so when he comes, you run to him with gifts and gratitude and appreciation for how you could trust in him when you could trust in nothing else. Or try to retain control. Try to manage these things on your own. And when he returns and all of our life's efforts have failed, what will we have to show for it? Nothing. Loss and devastation and trouble. So one day, when Jesus comes through those clouds and returns with the blasting of the trumpet, and he gathers his nation of faith together. Are you gonna to run to him or run away? Because the choices we make right now is who should we follow? The one who guarantees to bring us life. Because this is what I know the scriptures teach. The work will be done. The work will be rewarded. The kingdom will advance to the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. And millions of people will gather because others worked to show them that Jesus Christ is real. He's alive. He's working, he's speaking, and he's calling. And all of this has always been God's idea from day one. If the world calls us fools, let them call us fools. We're pursuing the wisdom of God found in Jesus Christ. That's all we need to do, but praise God we get to do it together. So my question is this, do you wanna live today asking God that fundamental question? God, what can I do for you today that would make your day easier? That's why we're here. That's why we exist. And he will empower us through Jesus Christ to do every bit of it for his glory. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.